there's nothing better than a good night's sleep. It clears your brain, has a critical role for optimizing your immune system, memory, and metabolism, and there's also all kinds of repair happening inside your body while you sleep. It's so powerful that on top of a full night's rest, I often prescribe people with naps. 30 minutes a day, unlimited refills. But like most things that are good for you, it's easier not to do it, particularly with sleep, because it interferes with life. You work all day, make dinner, get the kids to bed, and have what? All of 30 minutes before it's time to go to sleep and do it all over again. And that's a serious struggle because without personal time, life quickly feels monotonous. But whenever we go to bed late, we suffer on Monday. Just like our savings account, sleep is something we're constantly borrowing from whenever we need it. And understandably so. Even though we feel the negative effects when we lack it, we haven't really understood the full importance of healthy sleep patterns until pretty recently. And a big part of our current understanding is thanks to today's guest. I'm Dr. Neha Bhattak, WebMD's Chief Physician Editor for Health and Lifestyle Medicine. And you're listening to Health Discovered. Professor Sarah Mednick got her PhD in psychology from Harvard. She's a cognitive neuroscientist at UC Irvine and has written two books about her research into sleep. Can you just kind of go through the sleep stages? What is it that a normal night of sleep would look like? Every 90 minutes, we go through a cycle of sleep, meaning that we sort of travel through all the different sleep stages. But that cycle is different across the night. Um, We have a lot more slow wave sleep, which is this deep restorative sleep um, in the first part of the night, and a lot more REM sleep in the second last part of the night in the morning. And the reason for this is that slow wave sleep is the most restorative sleep. It's where you go into a little bit of torpor, really, like a little mini hibernation state where you can do all of these Um, what I call downstate processing, all these kind of very deeply restorative, replenishing processes that repair muscle tissue, increase protein synthesis, um, washes out these toxins, these proteins that can accrue in your brain. If they're not washed out through this kind of plumbing system, they can lead to the tangles that are part of dementia and Alzheimer's. So there's Very important, and you also get high growth hormone and a decrease in cortisol during slow-wave sleep. So all of this stuff um, that happens in slow-wave sleep, it basically needs to come at the end of the day, right when you go to sleep. You have this thing called sleep pressure, which is your need for slow-wave sleep that builds up the second that you wake up. The more active you are in life, um, the more you're needing to have slow-wave sleep. So Nature, in in its wisdom, has created a system where you're going to have the second you fall asleep, you have a lot of slow-wave sleep. And then as that slow-wave sleep dissipates, you have a second system, which is actually a circadian system, um, which is run by uh, your internal clock that tells you what time it is. Um, And that system is controlling 
your rapid eye movement or REM sleep. And that system is going to turn on no matter what. It's, you know, that it's, it's based on the time of day, early morning, in the middle of the night, you start to get more and more REM sleep after you've already kind of um, satisfied your need for slow wave sleep. REM sleep is extremely uh, important. We don't have exactly the same understanding of why we have REM sleep as we do for slow wave sleep, but it's clear that it's important for brain plasticity, meaning the reorganization of your neurons and their connections. We've shown that it improves perception, it improves creativity, it probably improves the connections between large associations that you wouldn't have necessarily made connections between. It enhances your understanding of the world because it can make connections between new things and old things in your mind. So it's obviously very important, but we don't quite get it as well. It hasn't evolutionarily been weeded out of the population. We're still deep in the REM world. So it's obviously important. So we have both slow wave sleep and REM, but it takes a whole night to get through to that big chunk of slow wave sleep and then that big chunk of REM. That's really interesting. So, you know, that makes me think of, we both have kids. I have a 10-year-old, 8-year-old, and an almost 2-year-old. And God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> and I can say the same for you because you have two children as well. And what are their mm-hmm. ages? A 12-year-old and an 8-year-old. 12-year-old girl, 8-year-old boy. And so I'm not sure if you – and I have all three girls. So, yeah, oh, I wow. really <laughs> – So when we are thinking about – we always kind of joke internally because some of them we call morning larks and some of us are night owls. And so even though we may be getting the same amount of sleep – um, my, you know, oldest, it's just sort of like 8 p.m., 9 p.m. is probably the latest she can go without that sleep pressure you were talking about where she is just out. Whereas the other two can just stay up talking to themselves, even if they're in their rooms, they won't go to sleep until like 10, 11 p.m. sometimes. And then they're the ones that will sleep in in the morning. So what's the difference? Is one better than the other? Or is it just the amount of sleep that's important? Well, I would say that it's probably both. We don't really understand enough. We need way more research into the differences between night owls and morning larks. The largest majority of people are somewhere in the middle and they are, you know, able to get up between six and eight and they're able to go to sleep between sort of, you know, nine till 11 in that category. But then there are people who clearly don't need that much sleep and they can sleep less at night and then they wake up really early. Um, But that doesn't have to be associated. You can sleep a lot and still wake up really early. Um, And then there's people who seem to just not be able to get to sleep in the evening. There does seem to be some genetic differences between people who are the morning people and the night people. Um, and, And there does seem to be some group of the night people that has delayed melatonin onset, um, which would be some sort of sign of potentially some kind of biological difference. But melatonin onset is very much influenced by the type of light that you're seeing. Blue light is sort of the rooster of the circadian world. And when you have blue light in the morning, 
that's the signal for your brain to wake up and say, okay, it's morning. And it, it's sort of the downbeat for your circadian rhythm to say, this is the morning. Now I'm going to start, you know, start all my engines. And the lack of blue light in the sunset, right, that there is no blue light in the sunset, tells your brain that now it's time to go into down state, right, to go into this relaxed state. We are living in a world where we are exposed to a lot of light at night, and a lot of that light is blue. The problem is teasing apart whether people who are night owls are exposed to more blue light, and so they've gotten a habit formation, and their circadian rhythms, you know, our circadian rhythms are very habit-based. And so it's a nature-nurture question, right? Did we just get somebody used to late at night and therefore their system's like, okay, this is what we're doing. I'm sticking with this pattern and I'm going to be a late person. Or is there something innate going on, something biological that's driving them? Or are those things the same thing, right? Like when you establish a pattern, does your biology just support that pattern? So there is research in cultures that have no exposure to electrical light. They don't seem to show a lot of variation in chronotype. Am I a night person? Am I a morning person? Everyone goes to bed at the same time and they all sort of wake up at the same time. Um, and it's only when people from that culture move into industrialized environments that they start to show differences in their circadian clocks in terms of their chronotype. So I think it's almost inescapable, but there are ways that you can control your light exposure. And I think more and more people should become aware of that, right? Because I think that we are really messing with our own circadian rhythms by all this light at night. And messing with, you know, according to your research and what you talk about in about the downstate, messing with our abilities to really uh, engender our own recovery. So can you talk about the downstate? Tell us more about what that is. Yeah, I would I'd be happy to. So the sleep research that we've been doing is mostly been focused on the brain. And I moved into wanting to also understand what's happening in the body during sleep. And that's when I discovered that not only is there a downstate in the sleeping brain, but there's also a downstate in the autonomic nervous system, which is basically controlling all of our body parts, our heart, our metabolism, our guts, and that we have these two systems, um, two branches of the autonomic nervous system, sympathetic nervous system, which is a fight or flight system, and the parasympathetic, which is that restorative, um, more downstate relaxation system. The idea of the downstate came when I realized, oh, in sleep, our brains go into this deep, slow wave where we have an upstate where the brain is highly active and then a downstate where it's actually very silent and that's incredibly restorative for the brain. The body also goes through this upstate where um, during the sympathetic arousal, you're highly active um, and then you go into a downstate where the parasympathetic goes in and repairs all of that damage. And I suddenly saw like, you know, that is a that rhythm of upstates and downstate, upstate activity and downstate repose is universal. Um, you know, the sun comes out and we have these universal mechanisms that if you're a plant, a bacteria, a, a you know, a human, you're going to be observing this high activity during the sunlight and low activity during moonlight. 
And then there's also all these things that we can do to control that, right? That you can suddenly, you know, say, well, there's some universal mechanisms that guide the upstates and downstates. But then there's also um, things that we can do to adjust our activity to optimize our activity so that we're we're kind of falling in line with these universal rhythms and getting more out of them. And that was the basis of the power of the downstate is to sort of explain the importance of these rhythms that we need both the upstate activity part, but we also really need to replenish. And so is the downstate really time when you're asleep or can you be in the downstate and not be asleep, meditating and and other things like that? Yeah, great question. I think that in general, we put a lot of uh, stress and heavy lifting and sort of weight on sleep as being the only time that we can downstate. Um, And that for sure is the natural time um, where animals do downstate. But we as humans are able to control our lives and we can actually access the downstate any time that we can step away from the stress of life. Why does meditation work? Because it's accessing downstate and it's all starting with your breath. A lot of these restorative practices, meditation and yoga, tai chi, at their root is breath control. Slowing your breath is under control of your um, of your parasympathetic nervous system. And I call that the restorative system. So when you can access slow, deep breathing, what you're telling your brain is, I'm fine. That kind of shallow, weak breath that comes with being a little panicky, that comes with being a little stressed, that comes whenever you open your email, that is your sympathetic (laughs) nervous system telling you something's wrong, what's going on, am I okay, right? And then harnessing the control of that breath brings on your restorative system. Anytime that you can engage in slow, deep breathing during the day, as you take a deck and see you're taking a deep breath, (laughs) you know, it's actually taking down the stress response, right? Taking it down a notch so that when you are at the end of the day, you don't have this massive amount of stress that's accumulated. And you're basically then going to ask sleep to take care of all this stuff, take me away from all this stuff, right? And it's, it's too much. And it's not just breathing, but, but breathing is really where the root of it is. You can also do it anytime you can engage the parasympathetic restore system, being in nature, getting away from um, urban environments and just breathing deeply in the woods or at the beach or in a park, anywhere where you can just get away from the cement, being with people who love you, who make you feel safe, intimate touch, uh, you know, hand-holding, arms around you, sex, anything that can deepen your feelings of relaxation and your feelings that you're safe. Those are the systems that during the day, if you can turn those on, you can um, create these downstates. And do you know if your brain patterns sort of become more akin to that slow wave sleep when you are in that down state during the day, if you're awake and deep breathing, is that closer to, or is that just a completely different type of brain mechanism than when you're in slow wave sleep? 
Yeah. So what's interesting is that we've put so much effort into thinking that it's all about your brain. Um, and so what happens in sleep is you have these really big slow waves that um, are your brain activity going into the down state. Um, and during that same time, you have this really big amplification of the parasympathetic restore system. And so we've made this kind of connection that may actually be an oversimplification of saying it's all the brain activity. But what more recent research is showing is that it may really be more of the parasympathetic activity. It may be the restorative response that is really, even though it coincides with the slow waves naturally during sleep, it's the physical response to taking a break and relaxing and feeling safe is more um, powerfully predicting better health, better sleep, better metabolism, better cardiovascular health. Uh, so many of these things that I think we often associate with brain activity and thinking it must be the brain. You know, my research and others is really showing, I think we should be focusing more on the parasympathetic activity. You know, that is so interesting and such a great point, because I think that we all have a tendency to deconstruct things and sort of say, OK, and, you know, we do this in medicine for sure. We're like, OK, this is a heart problem. This is heart disease or this is diabetes or this is dementia. And really, it's just all so interconnected that you can't really think about it as a pill for every ill. You have to kind of take more of a holistic approach. Then you're sort of treating the underlying reasons for all of it. Mental health, your physical health is all completely interconnected. Um, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just, you know, I mean, like, there's so much there. <laughs> <laughs> so if you think about yourself as being based in rhythms, not only is there are these universal rhythms out there of the sun coming up and the sun going down, every system has a rhythm. Your heart rate has a rhythm, your breathing rate has a rhythm, your metabolism has a rhythm, your brain activity actually has an optimal rhythm where it's working its best in the morning and it's getting worse and worse and worse as we go through. Your emotional systems have a rhythm, the different parts of the brain. And the key is thinking about this, not in terms of this siloed approach is what you're saying, which I think science and medical science were so into reducing into these testable chunks that we've stopped remembering that it's all interrelated and that these rhythms actually affect each other. So in the book, I talk first about the autonomic nervous system because that is really at the root of a lot of this, this kind of balance between the revving sympathetic system and the more restorative parasympathetic system. But then I go into sleep and circadian rhythm, and then I go into exercise, and then into nutrition and eating, because everything affects everything. As a sleep researcher, you're telling people what to do at night to sleep better. But what you do during the day, how you exercise, when you exercise, how you eat, what you eat, right? How you're breathing. All these things affect what you do at night and how well you sleep at night. And people have known this forever. There's nothing new under the sun, right? There's nothing new that, in what I'm saying, but I'm trying to give people a framework to understand how they can sort of optimize their best self by considering how these rhythms all affect each other. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, you know, again, bringing it back to 20 years ago, I remember having a conversation with you about this, just sort of the rhythms of nature. I, I remember being in your office and talking to you about this. And I, it's just like, so amazing to have that come back and see this sort of wow, uh, that's thread. So cool. I- <laughs> that's so great. That makes me so happy. I love that. COVID has changed a lot of things for a lot of people in terms of how we are living our lives and thinking about the rhythms of our lives because that external sort of stimuli that maybe we had life organized in some way in the before, it really just disorganized a lot of things and and shook a lot of things up for us globally. Um, And one of the things that it did for me was it made my father move back into the home with me. And so he's been helping take care of this newest generation, the newest baby. I and know your father. I met your father. He, I think you did. Yeah, he came. He came to the lab where there was like maybe at your graduation. I think it was something like that. Yes. <laughs> and he's bringing back a lot of sort of the older wisdom into our home in terms of resetting our rhythms from when we wake up. And his biggest thing is is deep breathing. Anyone that meets him, as we walk out the door, he sends us off with a message of breathe, deep breathe. And that's what he does all day long because he oh says, my God, I worship this man. <laughs> that is so amazing. I love no, this is the this is the ancient wisdom that is that that we are ignoring, right? That it's 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 in every old culture. It's in every old philosophy it's in every old approach to medicine is this balance and at the heart of it is our breath you know in medicine sometimes we when we're talking to our patients about behavioral or mental health and we will talk about sometimes where are you carrying your stress you know like let's unpack that maybe uh, to see you know so that you can identify those times where you need to take a break and the biggest thing that I found personally that I can take control of when I'm feeling that way is what you said the shout like your shallow breathing you have this impending sense of of doom and that is the thing that I can control in that moment is to just say, okay, take a deep breath. I maybe won't be able to change what I'm going to eat right that minute because I've already packed my lunch. I probably can't, don't have time to go out and do exercise, but I can in that moment just stop for a few seconds and reset myself with deep breathing. What are your sort of top tips for trying to regain control over that rhythm and maybe help optimize sleep? There's a ton. Um, we could start with in the morning, the first thing that you want to do, you can have a quiet morning where you slowly ramp up. But at some point during that morning, you want to be sitting um, in the sun or exposed to a bright light from not a, any kind of light bulb, but from a, you know, a circadian light box. You need that trigger with that blue light in the morning. And obviously the best way to do it is in natural light. But but sometimes, especially in winter, it can be quite difficult to get to that bright light. So having a bright light box can be really helpful. And then during the day, you also have opportunities with exercise. There's times in which you're sort of optimized for different types of exercise. The first one I would think about is the cardiovascularly intense exercise that really gets your heart pumping and you're sweating, um, something intense that can jumpstart your um, sympathetic system, sort of really rev you up. 
because what happens is when you take that opportunity to have like a hit workout or an intense run, um, something or a swim that really gets your system going, it jump starts your rev system. And then across the day, what you find is that your rev system, the sympathetic system is slowly coming down. And with it, the restore system is slowly ramping up. Those are very much in relationship to each other. There's a ratio there. And what's the benefit of having the morning cardiovascular intense exercise is that the restore response peaks during the first part of the night. And that means that you're sort of creating these resonant systems where um, the restore system is resonating with your deep sleep that happens in the first part of the night. So timing your exercise, and that means that restore is going to be even more amplified. If you do weights, there's a circadian um, benefit to moving weightlifting to the afternoon. That seems to be the time where you're most able to develop muscle mass. It's not as much of a cardiovascular pressure. Eating, you have the most powerful metabolic system in the morning and in the day. And then this is when you have your highest amount of insulin. And as you go through your day, insulin literally just decreases. And so the amount of food um, that you can use decreases as well. And, and, and when you don't use it, it gets left in your bloodstream and can turn into fat. That time-restricted eating quality, right? That fasting quality um, where you cut off any kind of evening eating is based on the science of giving your metabolism this big down state because when you eat, it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system and it stimulates that arousal system. So it revs you up. So you really don't want to eat at night. And a lot of the time, the calories that we want at night are are the not the, highest. the best. Yes. <laughs> They're not those the best calories. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're not like grape. I'm going to have fruit. <laughs> no. <laughs> Let me have that avocado now. Yes. Right, yeah, you're right. 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 Oh, I think what I find really interesting by in terms of what you're saying right now too is that you know it's not that we're always required to be in the down state that there's there are times when you want to be revved up so and those times are you know with our normal rhythm is in the morning so you you are that's the best time to be revved up and be ready to go and do the things you want to do um and then slowly sort of be mindful that your day is leading to winding down so that you can have that restful sleep and then start over again in the morning. And that, you know, what, this is not a prescription for inactivity or just being, you know, in this down state all the time. It's just sort of timing things appropriately with the rhythm of your body. And then I love what you said about just feeling safe as you're doing it. If you're getting anxious or you're getting really stressed out um, and revved up, that's a good time to sort of, you know, pull back a little bit briefly recalibrate and then keep going. And I'll bring in my dad one last time Please because do. at the after he retired he worked as a courier for labs, you know, taking picking up labs from doctors offices and he was on this crazy schedule at like 78 years old just like waking up early, driving around New Jersey to go to all these different labs and he said he used the entire time he was driving to do his breathing exercises. And this man can sleep when he gets home and when he is, you know, ready to go to bed, he falls asleep 
like that. He is not someone who's ever suffered problems with insomnia or anything. And I think it's just interesting that he felt this pressure to sort of do this work, um, even at a later age, um, but then tried to find times within his day to sort of say, okay, I'm driving, I'm deep breathing, I'm walking, I'm deep breathing. And so I, I just wanted to bring it back to that that message as well, that you have to kind of find this time where you can. That deep breath is right there waiting for you at any moment. Even when you feel like you don't have control over many things of your life, you can always control your breath. I, I want to interview your dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you because, you know, the work you're doing is so important. I love that you are really trying to get that message out there and talking to people like me, doctors that are seeing patients um, that really could benefit from this type of message. So I, I so appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Neha. This is such a pleasure to see you again and to reconnect and be able to talk about this stuff and then have your dad brought in to me is just <laughs> full circle. Thank you. Special thanks to Professor Sarah Mednick. If you want to learn more about why sleeping is so important for your health and how to make it a habit, pick up a copy of her books, The Power of the Downstate and Take a Nap, Change Your Life. Thanks for listening to WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. I'm Dr. Neha Bartuk, and I want you to be healthy, happy, and here for our latest episodes. So follow us on your favorite podcast app. See you next time.